Welcome to church. We're glad to have you uh, in the house of God with us uh, this morning. Hey, something I want to put on your radar real briefly. In two weeks, two Sundays, uh, we're going to be hosting our next Seattle preview service right there in the University District. That's going to be the evening of September 11th at 6 p.m. And we're going to invite you out to be a part of what God is doing more broadly across the region. We are doing these monthly gatherings uh, until we start our weekly expression, which will happen here in the next number of months. And God just gave us a word. He said, if you'll go to the city, if you'll pray, you'll prophesy your worship, I will work the soil in preparation for the seed of the gospel. And so that's what we're doing. And we're going to rally again in the U District in two weeks. And God is just really doing some incredible things uh, on those nights. And we couldn't be more excited just to play a small part in what God is doing much more broadly uh, across the uh, Northwest. So many of you have been praying and giving and asking how our Heart for Pursuit offering is going. Friends, we are closing in on 1.2 million in giving just over the last week. And uh, that is a testament to God's faithfulness and to the faithfulness of his people. And so I just want to say thank you. And uh, man, we just couldn't be more excited and privileged to be on the receiving end of the miracles that God continues to do here in this house day after day and uh, week after week. I, I so solemnly believe that one of the chief characteristics of revival movements is non-course generosities. Jesus says this in John 3. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave. And when we think about our response as believers, we respond in kind as those who have been made in the image of God. And we too respond with generous hearts and generous lives. And I just think something uh, is so important and, and of strategic spiritual importance when people partner with God in faith through generosity. So I just want to say thank you. And uh, we, are, we are just confident that what God is going to do here over the next number of months uh, and years is going to pull back the curtain on what his heart has desired to do in this region for many generations. And so you're in the right place. You're in the right time. You're worshiping the right God. You're not just on the right side of history. You are on the right side of eternity. And we will see with our eyes the goodness of God in the land of the living. David said it like this. I was young and now I'm old. But God's people are never forsaken and the righteous never go hungry. And so the God that we serve is more than enough for every need and circumstance of our lives. And so we rest in the confidence of God's finished work this morning. And in doing so, we prepare our hearts to receive his uh, word. This morning, I'm going to share with you out of the book of Romans, which is one of the apostolic epistles that Paul authors to the early church in the first century. The New Testament is comprised of about 27 books, and 13 of those we know for sure were authored by Paul. And most often, the authorship of Paul, it it takes on the form and, and function of helping lay theological framework and foundation for the building of God's church. And we understand that we have come into grace because of faith in Jesus Christ. We understand the role and the responsibility of, of, of spiritual gifts. We have a hope that is beyond the grave because Christ has conquered death, hell, and the grave. These types of foundational theological aspects are communicated to us by the Apostle Paul as he majoritively authors the New Testament. But out of all of the books that he's known for, 
most prominently, he's known for the book of Romans, which is a letter to the church in Rome. He writes it from the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth is where he planted a church and he wrote them two letters. Those are first and second Corinthians. I know that Paul, historically speaking, didn't plant the church in Rome, but somebody did. And because Paul has apostolic authority, he is writing them instructions in godliness and in righteousness so that they can continue to build in a way that honors not just the orthodox values of the Christian faith, but motivates them towards orthodox practice of the Christian faith. And in the book of Romans, Paul is trying to address two types of religious people. The first, I would call them the, 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 the religious secularists. The folks who have been so wrapped up in the worship of Greco-Roman gods and the worship of emperors and the worship of creation and kind of the pantheistic minutia of converging religious ideas that was so prominent in the first century. The first group of people that, that Paul is addressing and correcting is, is, is the religious secularists, but then he's also addressing the, the religious believers, people who have put their faith in Jesus, but are now tempted to give in to the practice of going back to the law, putting their confidence in the flesh, not in the spirit, trying to be made righteous by their exterior activity, not their interior identity. And so Paul takes time to write the book of Romans and in doing so is course correcting the church but he's also providing a framework to course correct the culture. And he's addressing the idea that religion cannot make you righteous. And that there's this interior human need to be made right. There's this interior human need for actualization, for fulfillment, to know that I'm doing something worthwhile. And Paul communicates really in a prophetic fashion to the church of Jesus Christ and reminds them that their righteousness is not a what, it's a who. And his name is Jesus. Now watch. One of the primary heresies of the first century is coming from newly converted Jews. They are trying to convince other believers that righteousness can be obtained through observing the law. And Paul, he's a former Pharisee, and he's not just a Pharisee, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he's telling the church, the law, it served a purpose because it showed us our great need for Christ. But the law cannot produce righteousness no matter how hard you try because righteousness comes by faith alone, not followership of the rules. See, you have been regenerated, which means you have gone from death unto life. You have been justified, which means you have legally been declared righteous. You are being sanctified, which means you are in the process of being made holy. And one day, friend, you will be glorified, which means you will see Jesus face to face and you will be with him for eternity. No, it is not that God no longer has a righteous standard. It is not that we should unhitch ourselves from the Ten Commandments. It is not that we should pretend that God doesn't care about the way that we live. It is that there is nothing that you could ever do to cause God to love you any less or any more than he already does. See, my righteousness is not a reflection of my performance, it's a reflection of his. 
Jesus has made me righteous. Because Jesus lived a sinless life. Because Jesus fulfilled the law. Because Jesus ushered in the new covenant by his blood. And in doing so, Jesus has redeemed my life from the pit. Now watch what Paul says in Romans 7. He says this, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I joyfully concur in God's law. But see, there's another law that's at work in me. It wages war against my mind. It attempts to make me a prisoner of the law of sin that is at work within me. The famous C.S. Lewis once said, No man knows how bad he is until he has tried to be good. See, from the beginning of time, man has sought to redeem himself, attempted to save his own life, tried to engineer his own pathway towards salvation, fulfillment, or purpose. And you don't fully realize how broken you are until you try to be righteous apart from Christ. See, we live during a fascinating cultural moment where the attempt to be made righteous is on full display in the world around you, us. Let me explain it to you. Activism and outrage are the spirit of the age. And they have become the full-time jobs of individuals who are so desperate for the world to know how virtuous they have become. It's like the rich young ruler who said to Jesus, I followed all the laws of Moses since I was a child. The rich young activist of the 21st century would say, I've attended all the right rallies. I've posted all the right hashtags. I've donated to all the right causes. In fact, I've been offended on behalf of all the right people. And just look at how righteous I've become. Here's what's funny. The book of Romans 2,000 years old, and yet it still speaks to the core issues of the human heart today. People are desperately attempting to be justified in the eyes of the world. See, Paul says this law which is at work within me and around me, it only pushes me further from true righteousness because I can't be made right apart from placing my faith in Jesus Christ. See, my background is politics. Here's what I found. Anytime that you repress or ignore the spiritual need for regeneration and sanctification, you will attempt to appeal to cultural institutions in an effort to recreate those values for your life. Hear me. Oftentimes, social activism is nothing more than a poor reflection of one's own need to be made righteous. But instead of turning to Christ, they have turned to culture. Somebody affirm me. Somebody notice me. Somebody value me. Somebody tell me that what I am doing is right and virtuous. See, here is what is so controversial about Paul's message. He tells the religious folks, you cannot be made righteous no matter how many laws you keep or festivals you attend. But then he tells the secular folks, you cannot be made righteous no matter how many rallies you attend or causes you donate to. The only way to be made righteous is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And why is this message so controversial? 
because you can't save yourself, which means salvation doesn't come from within, which means you are not the answer, which means you are not the center of the universe, which means you are dead in your trespasses, which means there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. Rome was busy building the world's most advanced civilization. Its emperors were busy conquering nations. Its religious leaders were busy manipulating people with rules and regulations. And along comes Jesus to disrupt the entire narrative. You can't save yourself. You need a savior. And his name is Jesus. I want you to see something. I love the way that Paul is talking about himself in a very transparent and reflective manner. He's describing even his own inner battle between the old life and the new. And Paul states, hey, my problem isn't a lack of desire. I want to do what is right. Paul says, my problem isn't knowledge. I know the right things to do. Paul says, my problem isn't a lack of emotion. I delight in the law. Paul's problem is that desire, knowledge, and emotion are simply not strong enough to compel righteousness on the inside of a person. Paul is describing for people in Rome what it looks like to try and be made righteous without the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. No, your desire is not strong enough. No, that TED Talk you love on YouTube is not knowledgeable enough. No, self-help or self-motivation is not strong enough. You need the power of God's Holy Spirit, which confers a new identity upon your life. I think about this in the context of this vacuum on stage. Now, I don't know if I've ever operated one of these before, but at least in concept, I know how it works. I know what to do. I need to vacuum. Yeah, I know how to do it. You press the button. I know why I should do it. The floor is dirty. But I am still unable to accomplish it without a connection to a power source that enables me to do it. I want you to see what the Bible says. See, the Bible says that there's an entire generation of people who have a form of godliness. But what happens? They deny the power there within. They have all the trappings of what righteousness looks like. On the outside, they are the most brilliant whitewashed tombs, but they are filled with dead men's bones. They've got it all together. They're doing whatever a good Christian is supposed to do. They're in church every time the doors are open. They're at the altar every time a call is made. They even figure out how to tithe most of the time off their paycheck. But friend, you can do everything that is right to do, but without the Spirit of God taking residence inside of your life, you're not plugged into power. And I think about the Jewish brethren in the first century. We followed all the 600 plus Mosaic laws to a T. 
We don't work on the Sabbath. We pray regularly in the temple. We give a tenth of everything we have to the poor. We observe all of the ceremonial laws. We don't touch unclean animals. We won't fraternize with folks who are sinners. We have done everything that the law has required. And Jesus stands in the middle of them and says, I was born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. I have fulfilled the law. And in doing so, I issue you a new commandment. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and then love your neighbor as yourself and then it's said of Jesus that in him all of the prophets and the law is fulfilled and how frustrating it must have been for people who had built their entire identity out of rules and regulations I am righteous because of what I do. And Jesus shows up and says, that couldn't be further from the truth. You are righteous because of what I will do on your behalf when I place my spirit in your life through faith. Now watch. I love something Dr. Williams once said. He said, the law is the light that reveals how dirty the room is, but it is not the broom that sweeps it clean. The law makes us aware of the problem, but it doesn't empower us to solve the problem. The law could not defeat sin, it could only detect sin. Only Jesus can defeat sin, and that is just what he did through his work on the cross. Dr. Guzik makes this observation of Romans 7. You thought the problem was that you didn't know how to save yourself, but the law came as a teacher, taught you what to do, and you still couldn't do it. You thought the problem was that you weren't motivated enough. But the law came in like a coach to encourage you and you still didn't do it. You thought the problem was that you didn't know yourself well enough. But the law came in like a doctor and perfectly diagnosed your sin problem and you still couldn't heal yourself. No, you didn't need a teacher. You didn't need a coach or a motivational speaker. You didn't need a doctor. You needed a savior. And that's why God sends Jesus. You can keep all the commandments. You can tithe every week. You can volunteer at the food bank. But Jesus says it's not what's on the outside of a man that defiles him, it's what's on the inside. Meaning that the righteousness that Christ offers, no, it's not related to my exterior activity, but instead my interior reality. I am righteous, no, not based on my performance or works, but instead because Jesus has changed my identity and now I am everything he says I am. Watch what Paul says. He says, I wanna do good. I desire to do good, but evil is right there with me. And, and there is a law that is waging warfare against my mind. Listen, friend, you will battle against the problem of evil until the day that Jesus calls you home. I would love to tell you today that the moment you give your life to Christ is the moment you will never struggle with temptation or sin again, but that is simply not true. I love the stories of instantaneous deliverance. I love the stories of immediate sobriety. I love the miracles that happen in people's lives when they give their hearts to Jesus, but I also know that for most folks, sanctification looks like a process that they will walk out for the rest of their natural lives. I am righteous and I am becoming righteous. 
I am saved and I am being saved. I am filled and I am being filled. See, the apostle John tells the church, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But I want you to see something this morning. There is a difference between having sin and sin having you. See, you are a new creation in Christ. Sin no longer has a claim on your life. Will you still make mistakes? Sure, but your identity is no longer dominated by darkness. You have been made righteous by Jesus, which means righteous is who I am. And the Bible says, even a righteous man falls seven times, but they get back up. Which means that I don't lose my righteous standing with Jesus when I make a mistake. Hear me. God factored in all of your mistakes and still put his calling and anointing on your life. God foreknew every struggle that you would ever have and still saw you valuable enough to pay the highest price for your life. While you were yet dead in your trespasses, God sent Jesus. I want you to know this morning, friend, when you make a mistake, you don't have to get born again, again. Getting born again was one time was enough. When you make a mistake, you've got an advocate on your behalf. His name is Jesus and he intercedes for you day and night before the throne. And when the enemy tries to bring up your past, all Jesus does is presents that new identity. No, this person is what I say they are. And today you got to break out of the shame and the condemnation of your past mistakes or your present struggle. No, I, I believe in holiness. Yeah, I believe in righteousness, and I, I believe in right living and right thinking, but I also believe that without the power of the Holy Ghost, no matter how rigid or disciplined you are, you fall short of God's righteous standard. But when God puts his spirit inside of you, it is a legal declaration to all powers on earth and under the earth that this is a person who belongs to him. Now watch what happens. You're struggling today, I've got good news. You are in great company. You don't gotta be perfect to come to church. You don't gotta act like you got it all together. I want you to know today, sin does not dominate your life if you belong to Jesus. Listen, it might be your struggle, but it doesn't have permission to be your death sentence. Struggle is seasonal. Grace is permanent. Temptation is seasonal. Mercy is permanent. And here's the reality. There are some things that you will have to say no to for the rest of your life. And it might never get easier. And it might always be a temptation. But here is the good news. His grace is sufficient for you. See, some people think of righteousness as an activity that you check off. I view righteousness as an identity married to a process that you will engage with for the rest of your natural life. Now watch the question Paul asks in verse 24. And this is a common linguistic and, and writing style of the apostle Paul in his letters to the churches. 
he will ask a question and then he will answer it himself. In verse 24, he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Notice the question that Paul asks. It is not how will I deliver myself. It is not what can deliver me. Instead, it is who will deliver me. And friend, that is the question being asked by a culture that doesn't even know they need God. Who will deliver me? Oh, I tried to do life on my own. It doesn't work. I tried to be made righteous by culture's standards. It didn't work. I tried to engineer my own salvation. It didn't work. I tried to change my gender. I tried to change my identity. I tried to be in every relationship that ever existed. I tried what the world offered, and it has not fulfilled the aching hurt in my soul. So now, who will deliver me? When the Bible talks about salvation, it talks about those who are translated out of darkness and into light. Sometimes I meet Christians and they say, well, I don't believe in deliverance. And I go, well, then how did you get saved? Christ has delivered you out of bondage. He has delivered you out of the miry clay. He has delivered you out of the valley of the shadow. He has taken what the enemy has meant for evil and used it for your benefit. Who will deliver me? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Come on, if you were to be honest this morning, you've had some verse 24 moments in your life. I'm so dumb. I can't figure it out. I always make the same mistake. I always fall short. It never works. I ain't ever gonna get over this. I'm gonna be just like those who came before me. I'm gonna make the same mistake a thousand times. I'm a wretched man. Who will deliver me? God is not afraid of your honesty. God is not afraid of your transparency. God is not afraid of your emotional process. But I want you to know, just because you feel it, doesn't mean it's real. You might feel wretched, but God says you're righteous. You might feel disqualified, but God says you're anointed. You might feel overlooked, but God says you're called. I'm telling you, friends, you might feel it, but the one who is the author and the finisher of my life gets the final say. Now watch. Verse 25, I love it. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will deliver me? Let me go ahead and start with some thanksgiving. Let me direct it to the God of the universe. For he has delivered me through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's interesting the phrase that Paul uses in verse 24. He says, who will deliver me from the body of death? Now we may not understand that phraseology today because we are 2,000 years removed from the culture it was written to. But the body of death in the first century actually referred to a form of execution that was used by the tyrants who ruled the world. What they would do is, when they convicted you of a crime, they would take a dead body and they would attach it to a living body. 
And as a symbol of all the mistakes that you've made and the punishment that you had, you would have to carry around that body of death until one day the infection that was on the dead man came on the living man. And Paul said, when you try to go back to the law to be made righteous, you are picking up what Christ has crucified and you're carrying around with you something that was never meant to be on your back. When you forget that righteousness doesn't come from an exterior action but an interior reality, you are picking up what was dead and you're placing it on your back. When Paul is saying, who will deliver me from this body of death, what he's recognizing, if I carry around law, legalism, an unrenewed mind, an unregenerated spirit, if I go back to what was, I'm gonna become emblematic of the things that God rescued me out of. And for whatever reason, isn't this the temptation of our human experience? God delivers us from old patterns, but then we find ourselves going back. God delivers us from old cycles and old mindsets, but, but then we end up going back. God takes us out of old relationships, but we like the familiarity of the way that death felt, so we end up right back where we started. And Paul is crying out in an existential fashion, and then he's answering his own question. Who will deliver me from this death? Who can deliver me from my own wayward living? Who can deliver me from my backwards perspective? Who can deliver me from my unrenewed mind? Who can deliver me from the law and the legalism that's in my heart? One man, and his name is Jesus. One of the primary tactics of the enemy is to get you to carry weight that was never yours to carry. And why does Jesus say, cast all your cares on me for I care for you? Why does Jesus say, come to me, all who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest? He knows what religious folks do. He knows what secular folks do. He knows what well-intentioned but malformed and misinformed individuals try to do. They try to burden you with stuff that was never yours to carry. I want you to know your past mistake is not not yours to carry. Your past abuse is not yours to carry. Your past divorce is not yours to carry. Your past regret, it is not yours to carry. Jesus paid a price for all your junk, so it's high time to give him what is already his. Now watch. Here's how Paul ends. I love this. Let me end here. You know, the chapters and the verses, they was added later. You know that, right? Paul's not writing chapter seven, verse one. Here's what the Lord said. He's just writing a letter. And later on, they added chapters and verses to help us figure out where to read. But chapter eight breaks in, but it's the conclusion of the thought that started in chapter seven. Chapter eight and verse one. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is not less condemnation. It is no condemnation. Condemnation equals the establishment of guilt. 
or the punishment you deserve for the crime that you commit. Have you been struggling with temptation? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Has that old body of death tried to attach itself to your walk with Christ? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Have you found yourself wavering in your faith? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. How then are we motivated to change if we are not being punished for the wrong that we do? Think about it. How then are we motivated to change if God isn't interested in punishing me for the wrong things that I do? Because when you get the revelation that you haven't received what you deserve, but instead have received what Christ deserves, you are left with a heart that desires to honor God with everything that you do. That's why it's the goodness and the kindness of God that leads men under repentance. I don't deserve mercy, but I found it. I don't deserve grace, but I found it. I don't deserve freedom, but I found it. I don't deserve anointing, but I found it. I don't deserve breakthrough, but I found it. Because while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Friend, today's a real good day to drop off that body of death. Today's a real good day to leave lighter than the way that you came in. Today's a real good day to start to believe what Jesus says to be true about your life. The picture I got during worship this morning was folks who were trying to break through in praise. With one hand they had lifted high, but with the other hand they were whipping themselves on their back. I'm so dumb, I'm so broken. God could never forgive me. God could never help me. Let me in here. I, I'm going to go a little late, but I just need to end here. It's going to be hard. Just give me a minute. Four years ago, had a friend from the church living with us, a guy named Brad, used to play acoustic guitar on our worship team. Brad always had a smile on his face, always had a sarcastic, witty remark for everything that I ever said, and Brad needed a place to stay, so he moved into to our house right up on Foster Slough Road. I didn't always know that Brad struggled with the things that he had struggled with, but over the course of his life, he had dealt with depression and tendencies towards self-harm. And I'll never forget the day when I got the phone call. Do you know where Brad's at? He's missing. I thought to myself, no, he lives in my house. What are you talking about? He'll come around. His phone's probably off. Car probably broke down again. It's just Brad. He's going to be okay. And one day turned into two and two turned into three and Three turned into 10, and it wasn't too many days later when we received the news from the police that they had found his body. Brad had taken his own life. And for years, 
I carried around the guilt of feeling like I should have known. I'm a pastor. The dude lived with me. How could I miss it? I should have listened more. I should have prayed more. Should have been a better friend. I should have never talked to him about the rent that was missing. I, I should have been there for how could I miss this? He lived in my own house. And for years, the torment of that guilt, it followed me like a dead body. <laughs> and every time I'm believing God for breakthrough, it was like, Rah, Russ, you don't deserve this. Try to be a pastor and lead the crowd. You can't even save your own house. <laughs> and for years, I dragged this thing around. But there was a moment just a few months ago where I had breakthrough in worship. And I felt like God approached me and said, Russell, would you let me carry the body of death? Would you let me carry the shame and the guilt and the condemnation? Would you let me carry the regrets that have haunted you like a shadow? Would you cast your cares on me because I care for you? I am not preaching in theory this morning. I am preaching in practice. I have been crushed by the pain and tormented by regrets. <laughs> but Jesus, in his kindness, has invited me to cast my cares on him. And I'm telling you, friend, today, you no longer have to carry around the shame and the regret of what you should have done or what you thought you should have done or what others told you you should have done. Today you can be free. Today you can be whole. Today you can be made new because Jesus is the one who delivers us.